Hello and welcome once again to Back to the Bins. I am your guest host this week, Luke Giaconetti, so if you're looking for Michael Bailey or Scott Gardner, tough. They'll be back later. But for tonight, you've got me and I've got two excellent comic books to uh, go through here. These have been randomly selected from my collection. And up first, we have, from DC Comics, Hawk and Dove number one. Uh, this is the first issue of their ongoing after their miniseries in the 80s. This was published in June of 1989 at the cost of $1. And our issue is entitled Gauntlet. Uh, the writers are Barbara and Carl Kessel, and Greg Guler is the penciler. And Scott Hanna, the inker, Bob Pinaha, the letterer, Glenn Whitmore, colorist, Mike Carlin, editor. And our story starts on the campus of Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., where Hank Hall is talking to his girlfriend, Wren, and Wren is trying to warn him about another one of their friends who is going to be getting married, and that Wren is going to be a bridesmaid, and she needs a date, and all Hank wants to do is talk about how awesome he was during the recent invasion of the Cuns, which, uh, I wasn't reading D.C. at this point, but I guess that's invasion, right? When the Cuns attacked... So, he goes on about how he essentially was the point man, and the Justice League was basically following his lead, and you know, all this uh, typical macho bravado stuff. Well, until uh, Dawn arrives, and she says that that's not how I remember it, and so she talks about how when she was, uh, when they were there with the Justice League, that uh, Dove got all the attention, and she gets hit on by Gar- Guy Gardner, and actually it's very funny because uh, Gardner says something's wrong here, Dove's a little wimpy guy, and he's dead. Since you're obviously breath- breathing, the question is, did you just visit Sweden, or what? And Dawn's response says, you have an astonishing vocabulary for IQ. You must be Guy Gardner, I'd heard you'd suffered some brain damage. Uh, following uh, Guy's attempt to hit on Dove, Booster Gold steps in and is similarly uh, unsuccessful in his attempts to woo uh, Dove. In fact, he falls right into Hawk, who glares at him and then grabs him by the collar. And then Hawkman and Hawkwoman make an appearance, and they welcome Dove to the fold and say, we'll get through this with our feathers intact. Uh, Then we we go flashback to a little bit after Invasion, where uh, I guess they're they're in D.C., and there's an earthquake or something. This building is collapsing, and these two kids that are going to get uh, crushed by rubble. And uh, Dove runs to save him, and Hawk freaks out and tries to get him himself. And he sees the big pile of rubble, and he starts grabbing and flinging the rubble around. And um, D- uh, Dove is up on top of the building. She's not under the rubble, but obviously he was uh, very upset because that was how his brother died, was being crushed in rubble. And then they talk a little bit about the the gene bomb and that they were surprised that they kept their powers when the gene bomb went off and their powers weren't impacted, but they're not sure why that is, but now's not the time because they're going to meet uh, their other set of friends, the ones who are getting engaged. And um, Ren had told Hank so to act surprised when they say that they have set the date for the wedding. And so when they tell them, uh, Hank very stupid is like, oh, but Ren already you know, going to give it away, and Ren kicks him under the table. Uh, they, they really play up in this that um, that Hank is really a dumb jock, um, which is appropriate, but still, it's just amusing to see it played such a stereotypical sort of way. So they visit with their friends for a while, 
And Ren gets in trouble with her boss because she had called in sick to play hooky, and her boss spots her <laughs> in this uh, restaurant. Then we cut to uh, the Captain Sal of the Special Crimes Unit, and he is watching a security footage tape of Hawk fighting the Kestrel. And he's watching this tape over and over, and his subordinate comes in and asks him, you know, what he hopes to find from it, and he says, well, this is our only lead that we have on this Kestrel character, so we got to study it. And then they get a pile of other Special Crimes uh, Unit's cases involving... You know, other assorted weirdness, including Bonnie and Clyde and Dillager robbing a bank. We then cut to a fine jeweler's, and Mr. Shavers is the proprietor of this jewelry shop, and he gets a package, and out of this package, when he opens it, falls uh, a little metal disc, and the disc has gold with a white circle in the middle, and then a red, um... uh, It's like a V shape, it's hard to describe. Uh, And it falls out of the box, and, um... They panic, thinking it's a bomb. Meanwhile, Ren, Hank, and Dawn are driving by in a cab at the same moment when they hear a big fazakoom coming from the jewelry store, and there's a big explosion, and the door blows out. And the cabbie swerves to avoid traffic and ends up uh, driving headlong into a light pole. Inside, a large armored fellow, who is wearing orange armor with the little circle with the white and the red V-shape all over his armor, is tearing up the place. And uh, when the guard pulls a gun, he turns his hand into a bigger gun. And then he says, hands two sacks to the owner and says, fill these, gold, now. Outside, Hank is itching for a battle, but Ren uh, makes him stop and gets the hat and glasses and coat off their Jamaican cab driver, thinking that they, that uh, Hank and Dawn can disguise themselves before they turn into Hawk and Dove so they don't, you know, reveal their secret identities to the entire city of Washington. So they run in their disguises, and uh, Dawn says, we'll give you one chance to give up peacefully. Please don't be stupid. And Hank says, no, be stupid. Be real stupid. It doesn't take long uh, for them to turn into Hawk and Dove, and the battle is on. And uh, it's a good fight. Um, Hawk obviously goes straight for him, you know, throwing this guy around. And this guy, um, he's got a lot of we- weapons built into his armor. And uh, Hawk rips the the arm, the hand cannon off of his uh, right arm. And then the guy changes and he manipulates new weapons out of his other arm. And, you know, the fight just keeps going on. Dove saves uh, Hawk from getting blasted in the chest at one point. And, um... Then she uses an electrical cord to lasso his arm to pull it out of the way before he can uh, he can shoot again. And then messes up his aim on a missile that he fires from his chest that blows a hole in the wall and hits uh, hits a car outside. At one point, the, uh, the armored guy says, Quit dancing around and fight, woman. And Dove says, You mean hand-to-hand? You're armor-plated. Fighting you that way would be stupid. The, the battle continues on, and uh, Hawk grabs a... Uh, uh, remnants of a girder from the wall that was destroyed, and he's up to bat, he swings and hits the guy's head out of the park, much to Dawn's shock, but the head bounces and there's all circuitry inside, and um, Dove is not impressed that he essentially decapitated their uh, enemy, and he says, you've just got to study your basic weaponry. After he popped the leg weapons, I knew there wasn't room inside for a person. Had to be a robot. To which Dove says, what if he had uh, no arms or legs? What if he was head was human, kept alive by a robot body? 
And Hawk's response is, uh, well, it wasn't. Was it? So, uh, before they uh, can go much further, the head uh, opens his eyes up inside like it's going to shoot Hawk, and so Dove throws the little metal uh, disc at it, and then Hawk throws it against the wall. And the head starts talking, and it's saying that... um, that his name is Gauntlet, and he's got to remember because they'll be back, and he teleports away. Uh, the owner of the shop is freaked out. Uh, his, he goes, my store, my desk, my Monet. Oh no, my Mercedes. Thousands in gold stolen, my business destroyed. And so Hawk tells him to uh, contact uh, the captain at the uh, special crimes unit, and he'll put him on to uh, the supervillain damage fund which will cover the gap between what the insurance will pay. And once they get outside and they're changing back into their civilian identities, Dawn says, Hank, supervillain damage fund? What happens when he finds out that there's no... And he goes, look, the danger was over, right? We had to hike before he changed. So they uh, they get back with their friend, and uh, they're going to head out to the restaurant that they were heading to. Meanwhile, a shady-looking character um, is walking the street right behind them, and he goes into the pawn shop, and uh, he is on to Hawk and Dove, and he wonders if they might be mystical conduits, and that he's got to get their Titan... He's going to get their Titans file by blackmailing... uh, Well, I shouldn't say blackmailing, by uh, working a barter with his contact at Star Labs. He says, I'll get a bottle of Saint-Emilion Bordeaux 23... And so he starts thinking of mystical sources that he could look into. And he says, Fate? No, too headstrong. Xanadu? Too oblique. And he decides that he'll talk with Child, who is currently the immature lord of chaos. And says he knows um, what his... He says, the best transaction occur when one knows their customer's desires. Once I do, I'll make this hawk and dove an offer they dare not refuse. And it says, next issue, let's make a deal. I like this issue. I thought it was uh, it was fun to read. Um, I I got kind of into Hawk and Dove during Brightest Day. Uh, I liked um, I liked their turn on Justice League Unlimited in the uh, I think there was a second or third episode of once this series changed from just Justice League to Justice League Unlimited, where they fought the uh, the big armor the, with uh, Wonder Woman, and uh, and, I, and I like this team. I think it's a it's a, it's an interesting concept. I think they've the once they got away from the war and peace dichotomy and into the chaos and order like we have here, I think that suits them much better. Um, the art by Greg Guler is it's kind of that DC house style. It, it's got a little bit of uh, the kind of Liefeld sort of work, which was on the miniseries, but it's it's much cleaner and much less ostentatious than anything Liefeld ever did. Very, like I said, it, it reminds me a lot of these, uh, these 80s DC books, sort of a, almost a house style, just the way they were drawn. You could recognize a DC uh, book from this era, generally speaking. Uh, Hawk and Dove both look great. They're basically their their costumes we've come to know on them. Um, is that we get some cameos from the Justice League? Let's see. We've, on this page, we've got Guy Gardner, Firestorm, Superman, Captain Adam, uh, Hal Jordan. We got the Martian Manhunter, the Atom, uh, Booster Gold. As I said, the Hawks. Actually, when it's very amusing when uh, when Dove tells off Guy Gardner, we can see Hawkman is actually amused by it. Which it's fun to see a Hawkman that actually smiles once in a while. The scene where they talk about the gene bomb, I think that's only got to be in here just because they're going to touch on it later in the series, because it really doesn't serve any purpose in in this narrative. 
I really did like the flashback scene with um, with the rubble falling and, and Hawk thinking that Dove is buried because uh, there's one panel where he's diving, basically diving into the fray and then f- furiously digging through the rocks and, and uh, it, it's, the art does a really good job of conveying his emotion there when most of the time he's just a meathead, you know. The villain, uh, Gauntlet, he looks like somebody Iron Man would fight more than Hawk and Dove, but it works. Uh, big armored guy, orange armor, you know. Um, pretty standard style with the, he, the his arms morph into weapons like uh, like Cyborg from the Titans. Actually, there's another, speaking of the Titans, there's a funny bit. When talking about the invasion, um, Hawk says... So the USA sent down its big guns to kick alien butt. You know, Superman, Firestorm, some Green Lanterns, the Justice League, and me. Oh, and Dove was there, too. Didn't see any of those Jokers from the Titans, though. Kind of shows you who rates, huh? So I guess the Titans weren't in Invasion? I've, I've never read Invasion, so... Uh, I don't know if that's a, a dig or if they were off-planet or something. It was a, it was funny that he threw in the little dig at the Titans there. Uh, the fight with Gauntlet is, is very cool, because like I said, they, they really use different styles. Hawk just goes right at him every time, but uh, Dove is, you know, tries to, uh, she avoids getting hit, and then she uses, like I said, she lassos his arm at one point, she schoolgirls him at one point, which is uh, right at the beginning of the fight. Uh, Hawk jumps right at him, she jumps behind him, gets on her hands and knees, and they schoolboy him. You know, that's just, you know, that's schoolyard stuff, so that's amusing to see there. And, um, I really like the, uh, the, the faces that Guler draws um, when Hawk is uh, triumphant, when he smashes the head off of uh, Gauntlet, because he goes from beaming to looking slightly confused to back to beaming in the span of uh, three panels. And uh, then the setup, the um, cliffhanger at the end, of course, you've got to have that in the first issue to set up the ongoing stories. Uh, but generally, I think this is a really nice introduction to Hawk and Dove. I picked this up out of a uh, uh, probably the 33-cent bin at Borderlands during one of their big sales. And um, and I liked it. I thought it was this one would be appropriate to uh, read because coming up in September we've got the relaunch of Hawk and Dove by I want to say Sterling Gates is writing and um, and Rob Liefeld's coming back to do the art. Um, I, I'm I'm not a Liefeld fan, you know. I I think that his art has its has you know. Obviously there are people that like Liefeld's art. I've never really been one of them, but I'd never read X-Force or Youngblood or any of that stuff back in the day either, so I just wasn't really exposed to it. I think that, you know, if his art's gotten better. I mean, some of his stuff, like uh, on Image United, and uh, which is super late, big shock there, uh, and they had a backup in there, which was a new version of Bri- either Bloodstrike or Brigade. It's Again, they all sort of blend together, but the art looked pretty good. It's, he's gotten a little bit less over the top with some of it, so I think it might it might work out on the new book. But um, I enjoyed this one. I'm, I I think once I get finished collecting um, some other stuff that I'm working on right now, I might try and pick up this series and read more of it. It's an enjoyable, solid little mid or late '80s DC book. Very very nice. Alrighty. Our second book tonight... Let me just get a drink of Coke here. (sighs) Our second book tonight comes from the Marvel Comics Group, and it is Godzilla, King of Monsters, number two. And this was published in September 1977. Our story is titled Thunder in the Darkness. Doug Mensch is our writer, with Herb Trimp as the artist. Giacola and Tusca are credited as inkers. Jay Costanza as the letterer. 
Jan Cohen as the colorist, and Archie Goodwin as our editor. And the cover, I should mention, is Godzilla ripping the Space Needle apart and eating it. And it's like, take that, Seattle! That's what you get for being so damn liberal, as giant monsters coming from the sea to eat your one pathetic icon of uh, architecture. Now, uh, as befitting the cover, the our story opens in Seattle, where Godzilla has landed on the docks and is stomping his way through and quickly uses his atomic breath to set the docks afire. And we learn that this is a double problem because they're in the middle of the worst drought that the Pacific Northwest has ever seen. So as Godzilla wades through the ruins that he has created, he gets buzzed by a little uh, sp- flying craft. And this is a shield craft piloted by f- uh, shield green team commander Gabe Jones. And his, him and his team are, ca- are tasked with tracking Godzilla. And he calls in to... Helicarrier, which is under the command of Dum Dum Duggan. And Duggan is talking with three Godzilla experts, I suppose, from Japan. Uh, Dr. Takaguchi, his uh, daughter, what's her name? Tamara? Yeah, his daughter Tamara and his grandson Robert. And uh, Takaguchi talks about how he was the sole dissenter to an underwater nuclear test that was the impetus for Godzilla awaking in the uh, Marvel series. And uh, he says that he originally he had uh, objected because of the potential biological hazards, not, of course, realizing that it would wake up a uh, prehistoric fire-breathing monster uh, who would go on to destroy Tokyo. And then uh, Takaguchi uh, says that apparently it's not just Godzilla, that other monsters have apparently been awoken by this underwater atomic blast, and that Godzilla sometimes is the lesser of two evils, so it's not entirely unwelcome. Um, his daughter interjects herself with a slight disagreement, saying that Godzilla's kind of like a force of nature. This is, uh, ironically enough, something that which would get visited in the uh, Hesai, or the 80s and 90s era Godzilla movies, that he was not so much a, a, a sentient, I shouldn't say sentient, not so much a, you know, he, he was like an earthquake or a typhoon. It was simply something that nature would throw at humanity every now and again. Uh, but her... Her disagreement it pales compared to uh, young Robert, who says that many times has he saved our people from real evil, and many of us think of him as a hero. He must not die, and you must not be allowed to kill him. And so they take the little the kid away and tell him to you know be quiet, as grown-ups often do. So they get out their plans and what they're going to do to get Godzilla out of Seattle right when Gabe Jones gets back. And, uh, so Duggan and, uh, Debris Jones, and they, uh, Jones tells them it's pretty bad out there, that basically, in the last issue, they, S.H.I.E.L.D. shot Godzilla with one of a big laser cannon, and it was pro- apparently a very dumb decision, because now he's really in a lot of pain, and he's taking it out on the city of Seattle. You know, I mean, at this point, Seattle still has a supersonic, so they got something going on, so Godzilla destroying it's, uh, a big deal. So they go over their plans, and uh, basically they they're gonna try and lure Godzilla away. And it, their plan involves cutting off all of the lights in the city of Seattle. And the Seattle City Council is still deciding whether or not they have the permit to do that while Godzilla is stomping through their city. And Duggan is not happy about it. He says, "Still voting." 
Don't those uh, yo-yos know what they're up against? Don't they think a little darkness is worth paying to save the city? You listen to me, Gabe. If they haven't reached a vote when the time comes, you clear that plant and do whatever's necessary to take it out. So we cut to the Space Needle, where everybody's eating dinner, as people are opt to do in the Space Needle, when the Mater D says they have to evacuate, and they have to evacuate because Godzilla is right outside. It's like he's a gigantic monster. You didn't see him coming a little bit sooner. But everybody starts to panic and run out of there when S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up in their little uh, flying vehicles, and they take pot shots at him, just enough to tick the King of the Monsters off, as most conventional weapons will do. And Duggan's ready to run their plan, but the lights are still on. So he calls uh, Gabe Jones on the radio, and uh, Jones says that he's evacuated the plant, but he's still waiting on the city council. And so Duggan orders him to turn off the lights. And so Jones fires two missiles into the plant and blows it up. He blows up Seattle's largest power plant. It's like, couldn't you have turned it off and not blown it up? I, you know... Eventually, I'm assuming Seattle's going to need power, right? So, but it works, and they're plunged into blackout. And this is going all along according to Duggan's plans, except for the fire that Godzilla started on top of the Space Needle, which is um, still drawing his attention towards it. So, Duggan starts his plan, and basically, he has a chain of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents uh, leading out to the sea, and they've got super bright lights on the front of their vehicles. And so, he calls the first agent, whose name is Wu, and uh, he has Wu turn on his bright light, and Godzilla stares at the beacon light and then starts walking towards it. And right as he gets on top of Wu, uh, Wu turns off his light, and the second man turns on his light. And they continue like this, drawing Godzilla away from the city into Puget Sound and then the Olympic Mountains, and Godzilla just keeps walking towards the light. And they draw him all the way to the Palisades, right to uh, to the sea. And the sixth beacon comes on, and, or excuse me, the sixth beacon turns off, and the seventh beacon, which is out over the Pacific, turns on, but Godzilla does not take the bait. He stands right there at the Palisades, just stares at it. So Duggan calls in the helicarrier, and they fire off a huge, intense light, like five of these super intense lights all at once. And then Duggan calls in the blockbusters, which look like little truck-mounted uh, catapults that fire um, inertia blocks, which uh, apparently upon impact compress, implode, and then finally explode. And they hit Godzilla in the head with several of these until he finally loses his balance, falls off into the Pacific. And when the King of the Monsters surfaces, he swims out to sea. So S.H.I.E.L.D. congratulates themselves on a job well done of luring Godzilla away from Seattle. The epilogue, Rob Takaguchi, is staring at Seattle. As the lights come back on, so I guess, I don't know, these missiles were, like, temporary destruction missiles? Uh, Again, you know... It seems like there was better ways to do that. Um, But he says that the Americans are clever and resourceful, but they said, well, have much to learn. They actually believe Godzilla wished to harm them, and that he would turn back on them once he'd found the sea. But they just don't understand him. I do, and that is why I am Godzilla's only hope. And it says, next issue, Godzilla reaches the shores of San Francisco, and waiting for him are the champions. Ooh... Alright, this was uh, pretty enjoyable for a Godzilla comic. The Marvel Godzilla comic is is a little silly. I know what you're thinking. No! But, you know, where else are you going to see Godzilla destroy Seattle and and fight S.H.I.E.L.D.? You know, it's only going to be in the Marvel Godzilla book. 
Um, Godzilla is not drawn super much like Godzilla. He looks kind of like a big uh, iguana in a couple of these pages, and he's got really big teeth. And Herb Trimp is game, but it's not Godzilla as we normally are used to seeing him, especially not in the comics page. Um, everything else looks good. I mean, the shield stuff looks like... It's Herb Trimp, you know? It's a standard Marvel look to the book. And the carnage and the technology looks good. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, and frankly, there's nothing wrong with how Godzilla is drawn. It's just different from what we normally would expect for Godzilla. Um, I had a real problem, though, with Gabe Jones blowing up the power plant. I mean, he he's evacuated the plant, and he shoots two missiles into it, and it's it explodes. And it says, Blaram! I mean, that's a pretty explosive sound, Blaram, right? It's like, I don't understand that. It's like, why would you blow it up? I mean, you're all, you've evacuated everybody, you're ready to go. There's got to be a master switch in a power plant that you can, you can cut it off for an emergency. I mean, I've worked on power plant jobs. I know this to be the fact that there's an emergency shutdown system. And that the lights come back on would suggest either that they're drawing power from someplace else on the grid, or, you know, I don't know, that, that they really didn't need this main power plant? I don't know. It's a, kind of a logical problem with the story, when considering that the story is simply S.H.I.E.L.D. drawing Godzilla out to the sea, away from Seattle, that there's a logical problem kind of stands out like a sore thumb. Other than that, I mean, if you like Godzilla, this is worth reading. I wouldn't go out of your way for it. There is an essential that collects the entire series, which I think has just recently come back into print. Uh, I know it had been in it had been imprint, and then it was out of print for a little while. There was a, a rights issues. Toho was very, very protective of uh, Godzilla and their fellow monsters. Uh, and luckily, at least, Godzilla is the only one who appears in this of the Toho monsters. All the other monsters that appear are original creations um, in the entire series. Um, you know, I, obviously, I love Godzilla. Uh, you can check out my podcast. is all about Godzilla on Earth Destruction Directive. Um, so I'm, I'm totally prone to this. I love this type of stuff. But really looking at it objectively, unless you really want to read about giant monsters, you don't, you don't need to worry about this series, probably, in general. It doesn't really tie in much. Although, uh, a version of the Marvel Godzilla would eventually continue and appear in other comics. I know he appeared in Iron Man, um, uh, and Dr. Demonicus controlled him. I think, uh, I forget what name they gave him, but it was basically Godzilla with a couple of horns on there. And uh, I think Gabe Jones appeared uh, elsewhere after this, too, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, ads, I do have to mention two of these ads. First off, there is the Marvel subscription ad uh, on a half page, and that's not so interesting, but the other interesting part is above it, on the top half of the page, is He's Here, America's Real-Life Superhero, The Human Fly. Fabulous first issue, guest starring Spider-Man, on sale the first week in June. And I'm sorry to anyone who likes The Human Fly, but all I can ever think of with The Human Fly was um, on The Simpsons when they do the uh, the B-Sharps reunion, and the guy is climbing the wall. He goes, Hey, human fly here! Come on! I stayed up all last night dying in my underwear. That's the only thing I know about the human fly. And then, on the back cover, this one goes out to you, Scott Gardner. This ad is all for you. An angry thunderbolt of terror explodes out of the ocean's depths. Orca! The killer whale destroys sharks, ships, and men. He rules the ocean. He terrifies the earth. He is without mercy and without equal. Orca! The most powerful, the most fantastic animal in all the world. Dino De Laurentiis presents Orca! Starring Richard Harris and Charlotte Rambling. Opening in July at a theater near you. Orca the killer whale. 
I tell you, if, you, if this whale in this movie is a freaking genius. He, my friend Adam, we watched this movie, he said, this whale should be commanding armies. Oh my god, I can derail any thread on the Two True Freaks board talking about Orca, and in fact I have on several occasions. I know Scott got real hot with me because he did this fantastic episode on Logan's Run, and Chris and I were talking on the thread, and it turned to Orca, and then the whole thread turned into an Orca thread. So... There you go, buddy. Orca. You gotta love it. You gotta love Orca. That is about it, I think. Once you hit Orca, what else can you go but, uh, you know, that's the that's the peak of your podcast right there. Uh, I mentioned before my podcast, which I do regularly, which is called Earth Destruction Directive. It is a Japanese giant monster podcast. It can be found at earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. I also appear, along with Chris Honeywell and the Hair Metal Hero, on The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which is a horror podcast you can find right here on the Two True Freaks Network. Go to twotruefreaks.libson.com and you'll be able to find that show. And, of course, always go to twotruefreaks.libson.com for all your Two True Freaks uh, listening enjoyment, including uh, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Star Wars Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America... Um, Hope of All Trades. Hope, how you doing? Um, our resident uh, female podcaster who specializes in, in anime and unicorns and Harry Potter and other girly things that I'm not very good with. And just check out the show. Some really great stuff out there. So I am going to sign off. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I always enjoy being on Back to the Bins, my favorite comic book podcast on the internet. And that's no lie. That's a shoot. So I hope you guys come back next time. Until then, keep them stomping.